we have a special treat for you guys here today on the Kurzweil Podcast, episode 14 with Exxon Mobil, the great company Exxon Mobil. I cannot believe that they've actually agreed to come on to this show. Um, on it today, we have Jack Smodic and Mike Blumenfeld. I personally cannot do a service to their titles. These are exceptional human beings and professionals in the renewable space. So I'd like to start with Jack. Jack, first of all, thanks for coming on. Could you please give us a quick intro on you, your background, how you ended up at ExxonMobil? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us today. And um, so, you know, I've been with ExxonMobil about five years. Uh, went to University of Tennessee, grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, after studying industrial engineering, I decided, hey, let's move to Houston. I got up into the, really the upstream oil and gas side of it. You know, that was not something, anything I'd ever even thought of doing with, with a company called Schlumberger. Oil and gas is not big at University of Tennessee or even in that part of the country. And so my, my family friends are like, you're going to Houston to do what? Anyway, did that for a couple of years and I had an opportunity to move over to ExxonMobil. And, you know, I jumped at the opportunity and ended up doing kind of a uh, industrial field sales engineer. So I called on like power plants, pulp and paper, general manufacturing, construction, basically selling lubricants. Now, you know, I did that for four years. You're really managing the distributor relationships working through, you know, our customer issues, solving problems, things of that nature. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, took over for Gary Hennigan, who, you know, he's been in the wind space for a long time, did an excellent job. Um, and they basically said, hey, you get to now do the wind portfolio. So, you know, that's how I ended up being in the, the national account uh, sales executive. Uh, so I manage a lot of our you know, big customer relationships across the U.S. Uh, with with OEMs, service companies, and what have you. So, I'm kind of the wind sales guy for ExxonMobil lubricants. So, been doing it a year and a half. I've loved it. I'm relatively new to wind, so I've learned a whole lot from our team, from um, you know other folks. Dan, you've been outstanding sharing some of your knowledge. So, um, that's how I got here. But um, enjoying it so far. Looking forward to the next uh, five years and beyond. Awesome. Thank you, Jack. And then, Mike, before you give your intro, we talked offline prior to this uh, recording of the podcast. Your LinkedIn, you know, if somebody were to go to your LinkedIn and say, who, who is this guy, Mike Blumenfeld? Um, could you please just share with us, first of all, what is your title on LinkedIn? But then sure. also, what is your actual title at ExxonMobil and your background? <laughs> so my title on LinkedIn may or may not be International Man of Mystery because I honestly haven't checked it in about five five, 10 years. Um, my actual title is, what am I now? I'm advanced research associate. So my job role is I'm the lead formulator for um, wind turbine gear oils um, in the industrial lubricants development group. And uh, yeah, so I have a lot of fun uh, working in industrial lubrication, uh, mainly on the chemistry. Um, so uh, I, my background is I have a, a PhD in physical chemistry from University of Arizona. Um, I actually worked on the physics of solar cells and interfaces and surfaces. And there's a lot of interfaces and surfaces in tribology, which is the study of friction and wear. And so um, it was actually pretty, pretty easy to jump over to, uh, to lubrication. Uh, at first, it didn't seem like a natural fit, but, you know, it, would, it actually came pretty, pretty well. And uh, I do a lot of work on looking at sort of, you know, how wear progresses on surfaces, how different additives and chemistries um, interact with, you know, metals and, and polymers. So, uh, yeah, so I, I am in my, well, ivory tower in Clinton, New Jersey, where we do a lot of the research um, on lubrication, uh, different types of failure modes, uh, and kind of plot out the next generation of fluids. Fantastic. And Mike, you do have the best background. I have to give a shout out to you there. He even put plants in the, the background for us, so the, the renewable space, the green power. So I love the correlation that you're able to pull off. And I'll definitely try and do something similar in the next episode. My wife will be very happy you said that. Thank you. Fantastic. Hey, what about my, my wind turbine here? You know, come on, I, I actually have a little model here, so I need to, I need to add to my collection. Wind turbines and also uh, Tennessee balls. So yeah, I, I love that. Represent. Yeah. Got to represent. Um, I, I appreciate you guys' background on both of you. It's very impressive, obviously. Um, I wanted to actually talk a little bit about the ExxonMobil origin story in the renewable space. You guys are traditionally known for oil and gas and your massive influence on that industry. Could you tell us a little bit, bit more about how you got into renewables and what the evolution has been over time? Sure, I can actually, I can take that. So a, a couple of my mentors, um, Angie Cardis, uh, Jim Carrey in particular, um, they, I owe a lot of credit to the work that they did. Uh, so, so really, 
I mean, mobile's been very big in lubrication for a long time. Like we, we invented polyethylolefin. Um, we made the first products using, um, uh, using PAO, uh, and, you know, back in the seventies. So, you know, mobile one. Um, so we have a long history of lubrication is particularly in industrial lubrication. So, um, you know, back in the you know eighties and nineties, wind was not this like explosive growth sector. It was just sort of another industrial application and our fluids just kind of found their way into wind turbine gearboxes. And, um, and, you know, back in the nineties, like there were a lot of reliability issues. And so folks would ultimately blame the lubricant as they usually do. And they would come and they'd come to us and they'd say, well, what's wrong with our gearbox? So we actually, um, we actually had a lot of experience um, kind of looking at the gearbox and kind of understanding the failure mode. We had tribologists um, and, and chemists available who were able to kind of look into it. And, you know, it was really just, it was more of a hobby for them, to be honest, because it wasn't like this huge volume sector. It was just something that was really interesting. And so, um, yeah, they ended up uh, putting together uh, Mobile Gear SHC XMP320, which, you know, XMP is actually, actually stands for, you know, extra micropitting protection, right? So um, they were identifying all these turbines with, with micropitting issues. They figured out how to solve the problem from a fluid standpoint. And then, yeah, and then we just grew, I mean, that product sale grew with the wind industry. Um, so it was, a pretty, it was a pretty organic growth. I love that you touched on uh, development of products. I think it would be important for us to talk about your core focus. So we talk about lubrication, oils and greases. Could you maybe go over the different types of lubrications in the wind turbine application that you guys are currently servicing? Maybe Jack, you want to start with yeah. this one? Yeah, I can take that one. I mean, it's it's funny because I, I, you know you look at a, a wind turbine and it's 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 a fairly small little compact box up there, but you have so many different types of lubricants in a small little area. You've got hydraulic oils, you've got your gear oils, you got greases, some open gear applications. Um, you know, and so you don't have a whole lot of variety, but you've got some of the big types of products that we sell, the hydraulic oils, gear oils, greases, and things like that. And then, you know, as it kind of started out as, you know, we, we fell into, you know, hey, we've got products that work up tower. Then now we're starting to really optimize, you know, as, as as the entire industry is doing is like, Hey, how can we actually like formulate for this application? You know, so that's what we're trying to do with some of our latest products is, is actually look at, you know, the failure modes and Michael get into this a little bit later, like what actually is going on there? How can we formulate to, to optimize up tower? But, you know, we, we've got our hydraulic oils, but then that can be, you know, a synthetic hydraulic oil. You can have a mineral based um, hydraulic oil greases, you know, and I think even gear oils, you know, some of the traditional, um, I mean, it used to use mineral oil in the gearboxes, and then it pretty quickly moved to synthetic. And now, you know, you start looking at the next generations of, of, of synthetic gear oils. Um, in greases, same deal, you know, the different thickener uh, um, technologies that are out there, what kind of base oil, what kind of NLGI grades, you know, what is actually being done? What is the lubrication regime up tower for those very specific applications? So that's the stuff that Mike gets to dig into, Mike and his team, you know, really looking at what the future is for, for these applications. But, but overall, you know, you, you've got a, a very, not a lot of different types of products, but there's a lot of nuance to some of those products, if that makes sense. 100%. Great answer, Jack. And, and this is a little bit of a curveball um, for the listeners out there. Um, we like to go over a framework of questions that provide value to you guys, obviously, but just out of my own curiosity, and I personally don't know this answer, so I'd love to hear this. What is the difference between a mineral and a uh, synthetic oil or grease? Mike, you want to take this one? Yeah, sure, definitely. Okay, so 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 um, a mineral oil is typically considered like it's like a natural product, right? You're starting with crude oil and you're trying to do kind of separations and treatments, but you're ultimately starting, your starting point is, is crude oil. In a synthetic product, what you're doing is you start with crude oil, but then you break it down and you chop it up into all of its kind of cleanest, smallest building blocks. And then you rebuild from the smallest, cleanest building blocks. So you know, synthetic oil is going to be a lot more consistent. Um, to some extent, it's actually a little bit easier because 100% of the time, you know exactly what you're getting. There's a very small distribution of molecules. For a mineral oil, it's, you know, you're basically dealing with whatever was in the crude oil as it worked its way through the refinery. And so there's a lot more like variability, um, which is, you know, that's part of our jobs is to deal with that variability and make sure that the, the product quality is consistency. 
but you're always starting with a different crew that might've come from Saudi Arabia, might've come from Texas, depending on, depending on where you got it from. Yeah. One, one analogy that's kind of fun to think about is if you take a room and you take a, a bunch of different sports balls, so footballs, baseballs, um, tennis balls, you know, bowling balls, and you took all of these different types of, you know, things that technically roll and you threw it out in a big room, that would essentially be kind of what the mineral oil looks like to the machine, you know, on a very microscopic level. There's a bunch of different, it's, it's all oil. It's all the similar type of uh, molecule, but they're all a little bit different. And then as you actually start to do the refining process, you know, maybe group one to group two, you might take out, right, we're going to take out the bowling balls and the basketball. So you're left with a little bit more uniformity, but it's still a little bit different shapes. Now, imagine you take all everything out and it's basically just a floor of golf balls. That's essentially what the synthetic oil is. It's very uniform, very precise. You can roll across it a whole lot easier. You could still technically roll on it before, but now it's it's just the the... The, the slide ability and, and, you know, and it ends up being a much more uniform molecule. And then that actually, that base stock has pretty unique properties as well. And so that, that you get a whole bunch of enhanced uh, performance characteristics out of that actual base stock. And, and so that stuff that Mike, you know, looks at in, in depth as well is, Hey, what, what base stocks are we using and how does that impact the, the final lubricate, uh, the, the lubricants properties, if that makes sense. That's fantastic. No, I appreciate that, uh, both gentlemen. I, I guess staying on the topic of lubrication 101 here, again, personally for me, because I need to learn a lot more about it, um, could you maybe explain to me why lubrication is paramount in the wind industry? Start with Mike. Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of, it, a lot of it's because the wind industry is, is very expensive, right? When things go down, when things break, it's very costly. It's very difficult to fix. So, um, so, I mean, lubrication is important in a lot of industries, but if, you know, if you're dealing with an escalator where you, you can fix it, it's one thing. If you've got a wind turbine that's out, you know, you know, 20 miles from the nearest town and you've got to climb a tower and you've got to shut the thing down or maybe it's not producing, it's a much more challenging um, um, application from a servicing standpoint because it's very expensive. So you need that, high, you need that higher reliability in order to be competitive and, um and sort of that's why lubrication is so important there. The other aspect of it is just from a technical standpoint, the loads are astronomical, right? Like in a wind turbine, the amount of torque that, you're, that you've got on the turbine in the gearbox is, I mean, you put it next to any, you know, race car engine and it's orders of magnitude higher in, ter- in terms of the, the torques that are there. So you're really stressing the fluids, the metals, the, just about everything is being stressed in a turbine. Fantastic answer. I, that'll actually dovetail perfectly into the next answer. Uh, you just talked about the difficulty of the wind application torque being magnitudes higher than, than racing cars. Um, I guess what, what properties make up a good gear oil lubricant? You know, how do you identify? And Jack, you talked a little bit about mineral versus synthetic oils and the differences there and the, the precision in that synthetic oil. But what properties actually break down and make a, a solid gear oil? Mike, you're the formulator. I'm going to let you, you swing away at this one. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem. Like, so there's a lot of different properties that go, go on when you're putting together a gear oil, right? So, and, and every customer has sort of a different prioritization. Um, so a lot of what we do is trying to make sure that we have a balanced performance of all the different features that any customer could want or might need. So um, you might need, for example, low temperature properties are very important. You, um, particularly if you're working in northern, you know, northern climates. Um, air release, foam and air release is a very important property, right? You want to avoid uh, turbine shutdowns. You want to make sure that you have good flow rates in the system. Um, wear protection is kind of table stakes, right? You need to make sure you're keeping the, you know, the gears, bearing surfaces um, uh, you know, intact, that you're, you've got the reliability, which is ultimately why the, the gear oil is there. Um, you also need things like water handling capability and contamination handling capability um, so that you, you don't, um, uh, you're, not being, you're not interfering with all the other properties of the oil. You need it to last long, so you need antioxidancy. Um, so so they're really, I mean, you need rust and uh, rust protection. You need uh, yellow metal, so copper. You need to be able to be compatible with copper and, and not do any damage there. So there's a lot of these different um, properties that, that, that have to be optimized, but you're really only as strong as your weakest link in this sense. Um, and so you're, you're having to prepare for every kind of eventuality. 
because the, the, the gear oil is designed to some extent to take up some of the, um, the slack in the mechanical system and making sure that, okay, small misalignments aren't going to be the end of the world because the oil takes up um, and kind of protects when loads are, are extremely high. Great insight there. And I guess that leads me to my next question. And there might not be a right answer here, but are there any properties that are more important from a gear oil standpoint uh, than others? That's our that's that's sort of our, our, our number one philosophy, right? It's balanced performance. You're only as strong as your weakest link. So you've got to make sure and, and all of these performance dimensions, they all interact with one another. So you can't just tinker with one independently without breaking all the others to some extent. So, so the, the real challenge is, is making sure that you don't have those weak links um, in the system and, and then everybody can, 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 oper- can really operate well. Yeah. Good insight yeah. again. Go ahead, Jack. Yeah. And it's, and it's really, it's, it's, it's like a, um, chess match trying to optimize yeah. all these different things. And, and it's, and it's really the way that we formulate things. It's, it's, you know, you can hone in on one property, but we could say, hey, we just want to have the best oxidation stability possible so that the oil doesn't break down. But then, you know, you might sacrifice on something else, which, you know, ends up being, you know, a, a pretty important property. I, I don't know, you know, if, you, if you're focusing on that, maybe you're not as good at water release or something. And then, you know, then your oil is just no good. And so, you know, really trying to optimize the performance for the application. And again, this is where, you know, we're excited about, you know, some of these are, are newer products because we actually took a look at, hey, how can we actually optimize for what is going on up tower? In, in a variety of different, you know, climates, you know, because, you know, we're, we're a global company, you know, we sell into turbines around the world, you know, around the globe. So, um, you know, we really are trying to focus in on that, but um, it's, it sounds kind of like a cop-out answer to say, Hey, everything's important. Right. You know, but, but really so much of the properties come from the base stock itself, um, which, which is fantastic. So there's a lot of fundamental differences between the mineral and then the base stock uh, mineral and synthetic base stocks. But, you know, then it's, you know, then it's trying to find the right additives and it's trying to find, you know, the right concentrations of the different base stocks. And so it ends up being like, it's not, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, you need to get these big supercomputers. I don't know what they have up in in New Jersey, (laughs) but you know, you get these big supercomputers running these, these calculations and then trying it, you know? So, so really there's a lot of work that goes into formulating a, 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 you know, a, a, um, a brand new product. I mean, it's one thing to just buy base stock, throw in some additives and call it a day. But, you know, we really look at, you know, what, what if we could start from the fundamental building blocks of the base stock, which is the biggest component of, of the lubricant, you know, what does that look like? And then what do we need to add in? And, you know, what, you know, then really start thinking about, okay, well, what trends are we seeing in the industry? You know, the, the gearboxes are getting smaller, you need more output, you know, and then, you know, these, these, uh, really that the size that, that these turbines have grown to are just uh, unbelievable, you know? So what's going to be the next, you know, size, what are the next gearbox is going to look like? What do those lubrication regimes look like? So, you know, really trying to keep an eye on the prize for like the long-term future of, Hey, what do these gear oils need to do? That's uh, it's, that's interesting that you put it that way, because in just thinking about the wind industry, it's constantly changing and evolving. And it sounds like as you're trying to maximize different properties within your oils, it's, it's really just a huge juggling match. And if at any time you drop the ball on one particular property that you're trying to maximize for, something else could happen downstream that causes other effects in the gearbox. Um, another curveball here. And, and I think we were going to talk about this down the road a little bit, but I'd rather ask now as these gearboxes change, in their size, their functionality, um, different manufacturers are putting out different t- styles of uh, turbines. I'm thinking offshore, these massive, massive output turbines. I think GE put out their Halliate X, which is a 10 or 11 megawatt uh, turbine in just one tower, which is completely crazy to me. How, how do you guys adjust to those trends so quickly um, from like a property standpoint in these different gear oils? So we do have we do have really good relationships with a lot of the um, uh, turbine manufacturers and OEMs. So we do have a ne- basically a network of, of technical folks whose entire job is to figure out what's coming down the pipe before it gets there. And I think we're getting, actually getting getting even better at that um, more recently because we're we're starting to understand we're starting to to let's say co-design products in some cases where. Um, where we're working with a particular OEM or, or a you know, turbine manufacturer. And, um, and as they're 
developing and designing the turbine, we're designing the fluid so that it's not just, oh, here's the turbine, what's the best fluid for it? It's no, no, no. these two things were designed together. They work, they work well together and they're designed to go together. Yeah, very good. Jack, anything to add to that? Well, then you start looking at, you know, what are all the components in, in the turbine? You know, it's one thing, you know, if you can get forever life on your, your gearbox, which would be fantastic, right? But then, you know, your hydraulic system still only lasts, you know, six months or whatever. Then it's like, you're, you're not, you're still having to go up tower. You're still having to service it, you know? So we're, we're looking at not just, okay, well, how do we, you know, protect the, um, the gearbox, which is, which is a big focus sector, but then it's also like, Hey, there's, there's greases, you know, greases can be a huge problem solver, you know? So we, you know, we've worked with OEMs on, Hey, what kind of grease would work best? What kind of problems are you seeing? And can we fix them? Um, you know, and then all the other product, you know, product applications that are up power. You know, we have a lot of folks that use the synthetic hydraulic oil because it gives them the longest equipment life, you know, and so they're, they're finding value in that. So I guess to, to reemphasize, you know, the gear oil is, is a big component, but really, you know, we're, we're, we want to make sure that we lift all you know, the, the total cost of ownership for all of these different applications, you know, the, the open gears, you know, the hydraulics, the greases, the gear oils, you know, kind of lift everything up. So the, the overall life of the, the asset goes longer, you know, so it's, it's you know, it's kind of a, a, a harmonized solution across the board. Absolutely. And I like how you talked about protecting the gearbox. To me, it's protecting a lot of those expensive assets, those d- different main components of tower uh, in which you guys are very critical in doing with your product line. Um, offline, we talked a little bit about in order of priority or focus, I guess, the, the main failure modes. So those different failure modes you're trying to protect against, at least as it comes to oils and greases. Uh, the first that you put on the list was cleanliness. Um, could you maybe talk about why that's number one on the list? And then also, at what level do you basically consider your oil or grease to be unclean? It's a, it's, that's a really complicated question, but I love it. Okay. So it's great that folks are thinking about um, cleanliness um, and, and really kind of diving in there. So bearings in particular um, are very, very sensitive to any kind of contamination or any kind of small particles that are in the oil. There's very, and you know, water too, right? So any kind of water and partic- uh, hard particle, hard particle contamination really bad for bearings and bearings are one of those kind of, you know, those points in the turbine, especially in the gearbox where they had a lot of failure issues. So there's a big push to get as clean, dry oil as possible. Um, The challenge is that, okay, so how do you measure cleanliness? And there's multiple ways to measure cleanliness. Um, Unfortunately, none of them are perfect. Uh, So you can have like online particle counters to try and measure um, cleanliness in a turbine. The challenge with those is that a lot of times they pick up um, things like air bubbles and even antifoam as as particles, as hard particles. And you know, air bubbles and antifoam aren't going to damage your, um, uh, your your gear surfaces or your bearings. Uh, so there's to some extent they're they're, they're they're ghosts, right? They look like they're dangerous, but they're not. Um, and so the the challenge is is to have your oil as clean as possible making sure to minimize those hard particles which you can measure using a microscope unfortunately measuring them with you know and counting them with a microscope takes a lot of time and is not easy to do so you're you're kind of it's that trade-off of am i using my online particle counter and getting sort of what is the upper limit of particles that could be in there knowing that a lot of them aren't going to be actually dangerous or do i use a microscope and um, you know, you're spending money and, and, and time to actually do the count where you're singling out, okay, you know, this is, you know, machine swore for some other, you know, metal that's in the, um, in the oil. Jack, so would be that? Oh, good. So unfortunately, <laughs> the answer is it depends. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it, though. It's very insightful. Uh, and then Jack, on the commercial side, anything to add on, on to that? I mean, cleanliness, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it even comes back to the storage and handling of of your lubricants, right? I mean, I can sell you the best oil in the world, you know, and and if you put it outside, that drum outside, and it gets wet, then that oil is not going to perform like you need it to, you know. So that's kind of where we try and look at, okay, well, you know, where where is the grease or the oil? Where you know, where is it going? Where is it being stored? Where is it being shipped? You know, is are you handling it the right way? You know, and then um, really you start looking at the equipment and the reliability of, of, of the asset, you know, dirt and contamination. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest 
threats in not not just you know uh, um, for the wind sector, but across industrial lubricants. I mean, that's that's something that we preach. Uh, just, hey, keep your oil clean and dry, and it's going to do what it needs to do. You know, um, you know our our oil, the Immobil SHC Gear 320 WT. It's got a 10 year warranty, but you have to take care of the asset and the equipment so that the oil can perform. If it gets dirty, I don't care what kind of oil you have in there, it's not going to work as well. So that's really what we try and look at from a commercial standpoint is educating. Like, hey, if you've got questions, like if something doesn't seem right, if the oil analysis reports that you're doing, you know, you've got questions on it, like, hey, give us a call. We'll come take a look, you know, get you some support. We have our own lab that we could run samples and analysis through. So to kind of give you a double check. Um, but really, we're, we're, we're trying to be more of a, um, a solutions provider. I mean, we, we look at it that way. I mean, so yes, we can dig into and understand more about, you know, the particles, are they phantom? Are they real? You know, but, at, at, you know, really what we're trying to work towards is, hey, making sure that you feel confident that the, your, your asset's working correctly, you know, and so that kind of starts everywhere from having the product available, getting it to your site in a timely manner, all the way to, hey, it's in the, it's in the machine, it's been there, but, you know, hey, we've got some questions. So it's kind of the whole gamut of, of support there, you know, so, um, you know, that's really what, what we're trying to, to look at, you know, but, but really contamination control, you know, we, we, we do trainings on that, you know, why it's important, you know, and it's really funny when you start looking at, you know, the size of, you know, the, the clearance and the bearings versus, you know, what, what a particle can look like. And it's just like, man, you're throwing like these, what, what the bearings see is these huge particles, but like, we can't even see it with the naked eye. I mean, I think we can see like 40 microns across, you know, and is, is like kind of what, what the human hair width is, you know, but really, you know, we start, when we start actually getting into the, the oil analysis, I mean, we're looking at stuff that's for, you know, four, 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 nine and 14. We're gonna have to edit that one out. But, but anyway, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, at four, six and 14, you know, and, and that's smaller than what we can actually see, you know? So, you know, we're, when we do our oil analysis, I mean, it's, it's, you know, four, six and 14, you know, microns across, but we can only see 40. So if you hold up your oil to the, to the, to the sky and into the light, and you think it's clean, it very well may not be. And so that's kind of stuff that Mike's looking at is, hey, you know, what is the oil analysis actually looking like? And, you know, what do the results look like with these machines, microscopes, and things like that? Wind turbines, I mean, they need the cleanliness, but they're actually pretty clean environments, um, all, you know, all things considered, because they don't have somebody up there every day kind of, you know, opening up a port and, and, and changing things around. So, you know, they're not interacting with much. Generally, the filtration is very, very, very good. Um, so they are ultimately very clean systems most of the time. So I guess, is there anything that customers can do or, or different sites could do to make sure that their oil and grease is staying clean? Anything, and maybe Jack, we can start with you or, or Mike, whoever wants to feel this first, but I guess common challenges that you see when you're talking to a site where they're like, hey, we're, we're getting these readings and our online particle counters, we, it looks like there's real uh, cleanliness issues here. Is there anything that they can look at internally, such as storage you had mentioned, or, you know, leaving it out in the rain, for instance, would be a, a poor idea um, that maybe sites can consider implementing today to make sure they're preventing those downstream uh, cleanliness issues that they might run into up tower? Yeah, I think part of it comes back to, you know, and I know we're seeing this trend, you know, more and more folks are kind of having an established warehouse and then they kind of manage their inventory themselves rather than, you know, hey, we're just going to drop it on site, you know, because a lot of these wind farms, I mean, they're very remote. You may not have a dedicated storage shed, you know, where it's covered and, you know, uh, environmentally controlled and all this stuff to keep it out of the rain, you know, so I think a lot of folks try and go as lean as possible to where like, hey, we're going to have this central warehouse, but then when we're ready to do the work, then we'll bring it out and use it almost immediately, which is a good thing to do. Reduces the amount of time that it's sitting out in the sun. I mean, dust, you know, those drums have to breathe. I mean, they look sealed, but they they actually have to breathe. Otherwise they, they eventually explode. Um, but, but they, so they're going to suck in particles. Um, so if they sit out too long, then they're going to get dirty or rust, you know, rust on top. But you know, start looking at that, you know, it's just, Hey, how do you, you know, keep them out of the elements, but they also looking at, okay, what are you actually using to put the oils into the application? Are you taking one, you know, bucket, you know, one, you know, oil safe container, filling up with, you know, using it for gear oil, then turn around and using it for hydraulic oil. Like that's, that's bad. You know, even if you dump it out and try and, and, and you know, say, oh, I don't see anything, but yeah. I mean, remember, like it doesn't take a whole lot to contaminate that product. So, you know, really having dedicated 
you know, pieces of uh, uh, containers to actually put the oil or the grease into the certain application, you know, and some of those greases are a little bit different too, you know, so it's some of those, you know, we, you know, if you have, you know, one grease, you know, you might have a Zerk and then have it, you know, tied to a certain grease gun color and then get a different color for, you know, your other types of applications, you know, it doesn't, it's not as big a deal, you know, if you've got like auto lubers or things like that, but, you know, there's different types of products and, you know, not all of them can work in all the different applications, you know, particularly, you know, the, the electric motor bearings, you know, it's a very different type of grease than for your main bearing. So it's like, okay, want to make sure that um, you're, you're not cross-contaminating your, your lubricants there. Mike, can you do that? Yeah, I was just saying sampling is also another big issue, right? So if you are taking samples and sending them out for, for an oil analysis um, and you're expecting to get particle count back, then you've really got to treat that like it's a, you know, like it's a blood sample, right? You're not using, you know, half a Coke bottle to, to, to put the um, oil in. You make sure you've got, you know, real containers, real clean sample containers, um, and, and that you're, you're using good hygiene when you're actually taking the samples, you know, you're letting it run a little bit, letting the oil sample, you know, drain a little bit, throwing that away. And then, um, and then taking your sample after it's, you know, run for a little bit, making sure you're taking it from a clean port, um, and that you're using, you know, a, a good bottle. I want to talk next about, um, you know, moving on beyond the cleanliness of the oil, um, the additive depletion, this is brand new to me. So yep. this is very exciting for me to understand a little bit more in depth. Mike, we'll start with you. Could you talk to me about additive depletion? What is it? Why does it matter? Yeah, exactly. Well, and you've been, I mean, everybody's been doing it all along, right? So a lot of times folks will measure the, the additive elements in the oil and they'll look for a decrease in additive elements. Um, and I'll say that in the past, I mean, frankly, the, the gearbox was not lasting long enough in most cases that the oil was really pushed to its limits, right? In terms of a longevity. Um, and with the improvements in gearbox reliability, um, we're starting to actually see that, okay, we're starting to understand like, what are the real failure modes of a, a wind turbine a gear oil. So I mean, in general, the three things you gotta watch out for, for any gear oil are um, contamination, additive depletion, and then oxidation. And the contamination piece, okay, like I said, it's getting pretty clean up there, right? The filtration's good. Um, and then oxidation, it's not a terribly hot environment. Like you're not running at, you know, 100 C in, in a wind turbine gearbox. It's typically like 50, 60 C. So even oxidation isn't that big of a player. What, what, what's really happening is you're actually seeing additive depletion um, in some of these um, in-service gear oils. So what that tells you is that that, okay, the additives are doing their job um, and that you've got the contamination under control. You've got the reliability of the gearbox under control and the, the, the base oils are being put together in such a way that they're really robust against the oxidation. So, so as we pushed out the life longer and longer and longer, we start to see, okay, additive depletion is something we have to actually think about and something we have to look at. Um, and, you know, when you put together a gear oil, I mean, we're talking about like a dozen different components, you know, and again, like that's general classes of components. And then, you know, even within those components, there's, you know, often dozens of, of, of either uh, isomers or different chemical terms of, of the different pieces. So understanding which additives are disappearing faster than others and which ones are, are critical this is kind of that next frontier in pushing out, you know, gear oil lifetime um, and making sure that you're getting the most out of the, the gear oil. Jack, anything to add? Nothing exact. I mean, Mike covered most of it. I mean, I think to me, it's like, we're always looking at, Hey, how can we stave off, you know, some of these, the, the, the depletions, you know, so we're really, challenging conventional wisdom and looking at like, hey, what are some things that maybe we typically haven't recommended, you know, and saying or haven't thought about doing before and saying, hey, could we try this? Could we look look at this and try and understand like, you know, now again, now that we're kind of getting to, you know, the higher end of of life in these gear oils, it's like, all right, well, what's the next step evolution? You know, if this is one of the main um, areas where the, where it fails, like then that's kind of the next problem to solve, and that's really what we're trying to do is solve as many problems. And if we keep solving these problems, we'll get to that you know that optimal you know lubricant that you know in, in that fill for life application, which would just be fantastic. But you know we're just going to keep solving problems. 
I think that's pretty cool, um, especially with how young wind is that the, the problem now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm understanding this correctly, is the gearboxes are lasting too long. It's, it's almost at least longer than anticipated. So now you're having to redesign yeah. the oils for the longer life of the, the gearbox, which sounds exactly. like a challenge. Exactly. Right. Like, I mean, like, qu- quite frankly, like, you know, people were using, uh, you know, the gear oils for sort of 50 percent of what they could have gotten out just because there were other challenges to work on. So it really, yes, it is. Absolutely. It shows the progression of the industry and also the amount of work that the, you know, the gearbox manufacturers have, have put into getting the longevity out of the gearboxes. They're starting to approach those design lives. And now you can start to consider, well, what are the implications of a gearbox that's really lasting 20 years? You know, could you imagine an oil that you put in at the beginning and you take out at the end and, and that's all there was to it. Um, so, so we are starting to see some of those kind of, interesting failure modes that we never anticipated we would get to see um, because the oil wasn't lasting that long. I mean, when you think about it, like Mobile Gear SHCX MP320 was designed for five years, right? Tops, you know, and that was like the stretch life. Um, and Mobile SHC Gear 320WT, that one, you know, guaranteed for 10 years. Uh, so yeah, again, we're starting to get more comfortable. We're getting the, the experience with the lubricant and um, we're learning a lot more about it in the process. So I guess with the evolution of wind, perfect dovetail into the next question. And we've already hit on this a little bit, but I'd like to drill down a little bit deeper as wind continues to mature as a, as a, uh, energy producer, you're going to see that the competition, right? All these global manufacturers are trying to put out the best gearbox, the best price. Um, I guess what challenges, what additional challenges are you guys going to run into? Like we've talked about additive depletion. Is there anything else that you're having to really consider as these gearboxes get larger, they last longer, they're in different environments, such as offshore wind, where you have salt water, which I'm sure adds into the mix, uh, some challenges as well. Can you just talk about that evolution and what, what's the next step? I mean, how do you continue to improve or, or is that pathway even revealing itself at this point? There's definitely new technologies on the horizon. I mean, one of the things I mentioned was, um, you know, bearings. There's a huge, still a huge focus on bearings, both from, you know, a metallurgy standpoint, um, because, you know, several years ago, we started to recognize, you know, white etch cracking was a, was a big failure mode, particularly in high-speed bearings. And it was very difficult to predict when they would, when these bearings would pop. Um, so, uh, this created a lot of uncertainty, a lot of research, um, and there's still a lot of research going on both in bearing geometry as well as the, the metals that are they used to make them. Um, and once you start to getting into sort of some of these novel materials um, and new materials, then you have to worry about compatibility with the lubricant. You've got to worry about compatibility between the lubricant and, and um, you know, if there's any kind of copper or yellow metals in the system. Um, you, you, you got to make sure that it's not aggressive there and that it has the longevity, that it's not going to cause any interferences. So, I mean, there's the, the, the future is definitely uncertain, but there's still a lot more challenges. And you can always count on wind to find something new and interesting because they're constantly pushing the envelope. So, you know, th- this is the fun from an industrial gear oil developer standpoint. I mean, this is, this is the playground. This is the place to be. I love it, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a ton of different trends. You can start looking at the actual, you know, the, the turbines themselves, but then it's also some of the other components, the blades, you know, cause it all, ha- they all have to mesh together in a, you know, with, with similar performance and life. And, you know, you, you can't focus in on one and neglect the other. So I think that's where we're starting to see these, the, and I think it, it feels like an arms race, to be honest, like the biggest turbine, the most bang for your buck, you know, the, the fewest amount of uh, space that gets occupied and then offshore. I mean, that's, that's going to be massive, you know, here for, here for the U S and so that's going to be really exciting, you know, especially if it's like, Hey, maybe there's not a gearbox offshore, you know, if they're, if they're direct drive, like you still need some greases, you know, so, okay, well, like make sure that our greases absolutely can work as long and or better than, than they are today, you know? So it's, it's always looking at, you know, what, what's coming up next, they're getting bigger. And in some ways, you know, even onshore, you know, are these, are though their gearbox is actually going to get bigger or are we just going to make them smaller, more efficient, more powerful? And yet the lubricant's going to get beat up even more and more. And so we're trying to formulate for, um, you know, what, what those next uh, pieces of equipment are going to need from a lubrication standpoint, you know, but 
you know, the, you know, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, the total cost of ownership, you know, with, with these things, you know, and, and the more, the better that we get at this, you know, in formulating products and the maintenance and the life, I mean, the more cost effective it is to, to install new wind farms. I mean, you, you start trolling through some of the, the publications and news headlines. I mean, it's just like almost every day, it's like this farm, this deal, you know, the power purchase agreements are getting done. Corporate, you know, uh, companies are really looking into this more and more. Um, you know, even ExxonMobil, I think there's like last year, I mean, we had 250 megawatts, you know, contracted, you know, so we're, we're buying some of this renewable power, which is exciting. Um, you know, and then it's also, you know, I'm, I'm interested in what battery technology is going to do and, and then transmission, you know, and then you can build it, you know, we can plop these wind turbines in a lot of spaces, but if you can't actually transmit the power, you know, then what is it, is it kind of, or is it too, you know, cost prohibitive to actually transmit the power. So there's all kinds of different trends and it's all like, it's it's pretty exciting, you know, because it's, it's still, you know, I talked to some of these industry veterans, you know, and they've been doing wind as long as I've been alive, you know, and it's just, I don't tell them that because I make them feel bad, but uh, it's exciting. It's fun. It's fun to, to, you know, be what feels like on the precipice of, of some really, really great innovation. Um, and, and the U S is really, you know, a, a huge, market for for this technology especially offshore it's not it hasn't been tapped yet and if you look at the map of the u.s there's a lot of ocean that that surrounds the surrounds us so um so i'm i'm excited to see what what the next technological advances are you know and each each little discovery each you know we start looking at the internet of things and sensors and you know all, all this connected data you know we love the data we dig into it mike loves it you know so we get into the data and it's like really find these new insights which before you know it might have been much more of of a time based system like oh we just change the oil every you know three years or two years that's kind of what we used to do with our cars right it was like oh every five thousand miles just change the oil i mean you can do that but you know our oil like hey dude that oil can go twenty thousand miles you know and it's just like oh well i just kind of always did it this way and so we're really kind of at that point now where you know no longer we just changing on a certain frequency or you know putting all of our faith in, you know, oil analysis, we're looking at, hey, how can we improve the oil analysis and actually decipher what is what is going on? So there's a lot of trends um, and, and, and I'm excited to, to, to be a part of it and see what, what comes next. Mike, you called it uh, wind a playground, which I thought was a very cool way of framing it. Um, when I think of a playground, I mean, heck, I've got one about 500 feet to my left, you know, behind mm -hmm. me. I live in a little subdivision here. And, uh, you know, I like to go in the monkey bars, knock out some pull-ups. What is your equivalent of the monkey bars in wind as it stands as a playground for you? Like, what gets you most excited to get into the sandbox? I'm just still wishing I could do a pull-up at this point, man. Um, let's hey, see. Bl blame COVID for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what am I excited about? Like, what's exciting about wind partly is that I mean, the industry, it's really risk averse. It, it, it will, so it's, it's odd that it's a risk averse industry because again, if something breaks, it's a very big deal. But each turbine is almost a little experiment, you know, in and of itself, right? And I've seen some of these plots from wind farms where they show like all of their different turbines in terms of the power they're producing. And no two are alike, right? Yep. Like they're, yep. every one of them is different. Every one of them has a personality to it. And so trying to understand well, what is it about these turbines that's making them a champ or one of like the poor performers in the farm? Um, I will tell you from a lubricant standpoint, we got it easy, right? Like our lubricants are pretty homogenous, right? Like if you fill up two like turbines with the same lubricant, those two lubricants are the same, right? Because they were, they, they were one fluid. Um, so it's something mechanical that's, that's, um, that's doing it and trying to understand what are those mechanical what is the machine telling the lubricant? What is the lubricant learning from the machine? And can we kind of tease that out from oil analysis? Can we find new physics? Can we learn about new failure modes? Um, I mean, it's happened in the past. It's going to happen again because it's a very competitive industry. And you can't just put a margin like on everything and say that, oh, yes, there's going to be like, you know, we're, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to build the, the gearbox twice as big as it needs to be. No, you're going to build it exactly as big as it needs to be. Otherwise, you're not going to be in business. And so you're constantly at the edge there. Um, and, and that's where all the interesting things are happening. Gents, this has been a fantastic conversation. We're going into the last part 
Um, I do want to thank both of you for your valuable insight and handling a lot of my surface level questions because I'm no lubrication expert. Uh, so you've done a fantastic job thus far. Are you guys ready for the rapid fire round? Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm ready. You guys ready? Okay. And I think we've already sort of touched on this question, but it was uh, prompted by somebody that I work with in the field, a customer of ours. And so in the way that it's framed will be interesting. And I'm curious to see, starting with Jack, how you guys respond to this. Elon Musk, SpaceX, Tesla, the boring company, not a flamethrower. Remember that. Uh, he, he wants to colonize Mars. What, from a lubrication standpoint, would be the equivalent of sending people to Mars in the wind turbine application? That's a no fun pressure. one. That's, that's no a fun pressure. one. To, it's a fun one to dream about, you know. And and you know, it, it'll be even better when if we can get there. But I think it'll be something where it. it I know I touched on Phil for life, you know, recently. I think that that would be just fantastic. But also, like, it does everything we need it to do. We don't need to worry about you know failure modes. It just it's a perfect lubricant. It doesn't fail, and you can't even tell it's there. You know, in a lot of ways, like it's it's not messy. It's not you know you don't have to have all the mats on the the, the, the floor there. I mean, it's just you put it in, and it's done, and then it works perfectly and flawless. And we can worry about other things. Um, I guess that's the that that would be the the dream there, Mister Mike. Let's hear it. When, when we do our job, you shouldn't be thinking about the lubricant, right? Like that is the dream is where it's completely transparent and, you know, you put it in and it's done and you're happy. I mean, that is what, that's kind of what gets me up in the morning. It's what we think about every day over here in Clinton, New Jersey. Very cool. Um, the, the next question um, is, is the, is the hypothetical scenario we just laid out, laid out, is that even feasible? And I guess 30 seconds or less. Um, can, can we have a lubricant that you don't know what's there and it's a one-time fill? Let's start with Mike. No, no, <laughs> job security. Um, no, honestly, uh, you know, like that, that is, yes, we can do it temporarily and then the machine's going to change and then we're going to need a whole new lubricant. Right. And that's the cycle, right? So the lubricant, the lubricant can't be static as long as the machines are changing, right? Okay. Because they need to work together. So so the answer is, can you do it? Yes, but you can only do it. You're going to have to do it again like a week later. It's like a snap snapshot in time, you know, and every time we get something really, really good, you know, the industry advances and changes and we got to start all over. So it's job security for Mike there. <laughs> I we'll, work, we'll, we'll keep working on it. Right. There goes 2020. Yeah. Right. And Mike, you were speaking on behalf of your own opinion, right? Not yeah, exactly. Opinion. exactly. I will probably be fired after this uh, podcast. Uh, no, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, by asking the next rapid fire question, I guess you would call this uh, part two. Um, there's some chatter in the field that fine filters are removing oil additives, namely anti-foam additives. We'd like to put this be to bed on the podcast. Um, so this is like the official, you know, this might go global and viral if you answer this. Is that the case? Absolutely. Um, Anti-foam is the one additive in most gear oils that is designed to be insoluble. It is a very dilute emulsion. They are droplets. Um, they can be removed by filtration systems, uh, which is why you want to get the right amount of filtration, but just over filtering everything is not necessarily the answer. Very good. Jack, anything to add? He's got it. He's got it. The technical expert. Okay. The next one's a fun one. Again, I crowdsource some of these questions. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons, they blew a 28 to three lead against the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 51. I don't know if any of you are Patriots fans. I apologize if so. Cam Newton is looking <laughs> not very strong this year. Poor Belichick. Um, although I think we're going to have a separate podcast on, is he as great as people frame him to be? That's another conversation. But could you guys potentially share a huge customer win? This is where you can maybe plug some of the work that you've done. A huge customer win that actually tops the TV12 comeback in Super Bowl 51. Uh, you know, I think for me, I, I, I know we, we had an instance where, I mean, we had a, a customer that was needing product. I mean, for me, it looked like we weren't able to deliver 
on time for them to keep their maintenance going. But I mean, I was, I was impressed when we put the call to arms. I mean, it, we, we were behind 28 to three and we, we threw a couple of Hail Marys and got a little bit lucky. And uh, we were ultimately able to, to, you know, work some logistic magic, you know, really called on our, our organization. I mean, from top to bottom, top to bottom to really coordinate with the customer and see what we could do and came up with some innovative solutions to, ultimately get get them some product i mean it was it was totes of of gear oil you know that would that they needed for their for their site you know a huge huge delivery and uh we got it there and they really get their their maintenance done you know and that was kind of a thing that we strive for like we didn't want to be in that situation you know we want to be like you said we want to be you know on top of it po and the delivery date and okay we were done but uh you know things got sideways and you know we had to we had to come together in a hurry but but ultimately i think the customer was happy because they got their oil that they were looking for and you know we we didn't have to have that unpleasant phone call of oh sorry we can't you know deliver for you today and you're gonna have to postpone your your maintenance so to me, that's that's kind of a, a win there for us, you know, for the customer to, to be able to stay on track. But, you know, really, from my vantage point, seeing the work that we did and, and you know, the collaboration was really, really helpful. Love it. Mike? Oh, and... Uh, Putting you on the spot here. Yeah, well, no, like just the, the customer wins? Um, customer, or it could be just a development win, too. Something where you'd stumble across some sort of chemistry. I know nothing about... Yeah, no, in any case, but <laughs> you know what's challenging? Um, uh, wind turbine uh, approvals, like OEM approvals, you've got to get you know everybody to sign up, uh, sign off top to bottom, bearings, gearboxes, um, you know the the OEMs themselves, and just when all of that works out and you finally get everything aligned up and you get that seal of approval that yes, your oil is you know is great for our our system. It feels like magic. Better than any Super Bowl. Ooh, better than any Super Bowl. Hot take. Hot take <laughs> on, on episode 14 of the Kurzweil yeah. podcast. No, I love it. And I think it really just shows, I mean, this entire conversation, both of you gentlemen um, have a ton of passion for the industry. So I think that just illustrates, Mike, your passion for the industry and servicing a lot of these global OEMs. Speaking of wind passion, what, uh, what do you love most about the wind industry? Let's put, you know, the approvals aside or developing products, talking to the customers. I mean, as a whole, what do you, what do you guys love the most? Starting with Jack. I, I just love that the, it's, it's, it's a green technology that's going to, I think it's going to, it's not going away. Like this is, we're, we're on the brink of, you know, these turbines and this industry being around for hundreds, hundreds of years, you know, and, and I think this, this type of technology, it's, it's only getting better. We're, we're just on the brink of such great technological innovations and, you know, and it makes sense, you know, and I think it, it from, from a energy standpoint, you know, energy is going to, you know, demand for energy is going to continue to go up. So we're having to find new ways to, produce energy. Um, you know, oil and gas is kind of a traditional method. And now you start looking at all the different sources, solar and, and renewables and wind, um, you know, nuclear, all, you know, gas plants. I mean, there's so many different things that have have traditionally been used, but I think now we're seeing the growth and explosive growth really of, of wind. And I think the better we get at it, the more cost effective it'll be and it'll kind of keep feeding into itself. So it's it's part of a diversified solution of, of industry of, of energy. And um, you know, I love being a part of it. I love supplying products and, and working with folks because you know there's some there's some good people out in the wind sector. And it's um it's really it's 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 a fun smaller knit community, um, but it's making a huge impact on, you know, the local communities and then around the world. So it's just, it's just fun to be a part of something so big and, and so uh, impactful, and, you know, and, and exciting to see the growth potential. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. Fantastic answer. I love that. Um, Mike, let's hear it from you. It's, I mean, it is a really just scrappy industry, right? Like, I mean, it's a fighting industry. I remember, you know, five years ago when we were having like white edge crack issues and bearings, like there was a real like anxiety that is this going to, is the industry going to survive Are you know, is the reliability there and just seeing the resilience and that people working together to solve problems, to make sure that, you know, the industry survived. It was, I mean, it, it really feels like you're part of a community building something bigger than yourself. Um, the people are awesome. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it is, it's the place to be. 100%. Plus, to add on, you do get to go to shows like the OEA show in Coronado, which is a huge upside, but it's only the cherry on top. I would agree with both of you gentlemen. It's 
you know, the, the foundation of wind in, in exploring renewable energy as an energy source, we're not shrinking as a country, or at least I don't think we are. Um, and the demand for energy is only going up and being a, able to partake in the, the shift of narrative from a singular energy source or just a select few to diversifying across a select variety of different sources, including the renewable sector, which is fascinating to me. And then getting to know the people who are the backbone of the industry, everyone from the technicians to the individuals on the AWEA board and all the efforts that they poured into making this industry so close knit and moving together. And I truly mean together. While there are challenges, it just seems like the family has been drawn closer and closer over time. And it's it's an industry that I didn't seek out to get into, but I will never leave for that very reason. Yeah, I, I, I love I love hearing your perspective on it, too. I mean, and, and uh, you know, there's different and I think that's kind of the fun part. You know, I'm coming in fairly new to the renewable side, but I know I'm standing on the shoulders of, of giants, you know, and these people that have worked tirelessly in their, their careers to actually get it to where we are now, you know, and bring, you know, bring offshore you know, power, wind power to, to the U.S., you know, it's done el- elsewhere. Like, why can't we do it here? You know, so like you said, we have, you know, business network for offshore wind. I mean, there's all these different groups and we're getting better and better at it. You know, a lot, a lot of work has been done. So really exciting to, to see the, the hard work pay off, but you know, really we're just getting started too. Yep. And then the addition of uh, battery storage as well. Some companies are really paving the way there. It's, it's very exciting to see how this evolves over the next 10 years. I mean, looking back 10 years ago, it was primarily GE 1.5s, man. And those were the, the Cadillacs of the industry. Now, GE's got their Cypress platform, their five megawatt onshore towers. Uh, you have the 11 megawatt offshore tower, Seaman Gamesa, Vestas. They're putting some massive offshore towers up all over the world. And then now America is starting to really latch on to that, looking at the Great Lakes, the East Coast, potentially on the West Coast as well. It'll be very cool. And hopefully we could do this together in 10 years to hop on another podcast and reminisce on this one. (laughs) So Jets, two more questions for you. This one's simple. Uh, Again, uh, you know, a majority of these questions are crowdsourced, but this is for me to get a gauge on your personality and really your taste in music. Uh, Taylor Swift just released an album called Evermore. Uh, My wife, has some interesting takes on Taylor Swift. I just want to know, did you listen to the album or at least some songs off the album? Yes or no? Jack, starting with you. And here's where you got to have a little slice of uh, honesty in answering. I I did not. I I haven't listened to a single song. Okay, fantastic. We'll have you back on the show. Mike, no pressure. (laughs) I have. I I have listened to the album. Um, I thought it was very mature, complex, um, and introspective, which it's a very, very 2020. I only halfway kid when I say the Taylor Swift thing. Um, just some background. My wife likes to blare Taylor Swift on car rides longer than 10 hours. <laughs> um, so driving over Thanksgiving to Georgia and back from where I'm sitting just outside of Chicago was around 13 to 14 hours both ways. Um, and I think we listened to Taylor Swift for 90% of it. So wow. I've had my fill for probably my (laughs) lifetime and then some. Yeah, yeah, you're done. (laughs) Yeah, I'm done. Um, All right, last question. I asked this to all of our guests. Um, This is something that I stole or borrowed, I should say. So Kurz doesn't uh, have any issues with this, but (laughs) borrowed from Tim Ferriss. He's an author of The 4-Hour Workweek. Tribe of Mentors is another book he put out. He's got a famous podcast that a lot of us do listen to. I know Charlie on your guys' team listens to it. Um, He says, if you were to put a quote on a billboard, for everyone in the world to see. So that's hypothetical. What would that quote say? Starting with you, Mike. Don't worry, be happy. Perfect. That might be the best one I've had yet. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 can I steal that one? Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jack, no pressure here, but you got to top that my, one. My, mine's a little longer. Uh, it, it, it's uh, from some Jimmy V and I, he said, um, uh, you know, every, every single day and every walk of life, ordinary people do extraordinary things. You know, I think that, that to me kind of sums up 2020. It sums up, you know, our folks going up tower to, to work on these uh, turbines. It sums up, you know, our teachers, our, our first responders. I mean, every, you know, there's so many people doing outstanding things. So, um, but don't worry, be happy. is also a great mantra. To, to yeah, I like yours, Jack. I thought that was good. <laughs> Together, those are actually, especially Jack, you hit the nail on the head. It's 2020 been an interesting year. I mean, I've got this cabbage coming out the back of my hat here. Uh, yeah, Mike's joined me. Look at that. But your locks yeah, are much right. more wavy and uh, controlled than mine are. 
Um, heck, I mean, here in Illinois, salons really aren't even opener. My guy, Rick, he's not seen anybody at, at great clips about 10 minutes down the road. So, uh, but we're, we, we definitely shouldn't complain about it. It's been, um, a blessing and opportunity for us to grow, get together like this, virtually have these podcasts and conversations. So those were great quotes, gentlemen. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, just to, to end this podcast here. How can people get in touch with you guys? Mike, you're kind of the mystery man on LinkedIn. So maybe Jack <laughs> will have you be the main, the main guy yeah. that they could reach out to. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is great. Uh, Jack Smodic, I'm, I'm there on LinkedIn. Um, but you also send an email, jack.smodic, S-M-O-D-I-C at exxonmobile.com. Um, other than that, um, feel free to reach out to Dan and he could put you in touch with us. So be happy to answer any questions or you know support you all any way that we can. Fantastic. Yeah. And we'll have that in the show notes. Um, we typically re- recap all these different podcasts and we'll put contact information. Mike, I might have to put your email in there as well, because you're one of the most interesting guests, the most uh, decorated in terms of degree and background guests that we've had on. So I'm sure you're going to have some people reaching out to you, maybe even college students that are trying to pave the way into win. So um, if you're okay with that, I might have to, to share your info. No problem. Awesome, man. Well, gentlemen, thank you again for, for hopping on this podcast. We went over an hour and it felt like it was about five minutes. <laughs> I learned a ton. I think a lot of our uh, listeners are going to learn a ton. Just really appreciate it. And this is episode 14 of the Kurzweil Wind Podcast. Mm-hmm.